This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. And welcome to David's Book Talk. And today we're going to have a very special guest. He hasn't written a book in quite a while. And his new book is called All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. Did I hear a laugh there? <laughs> you did. It has been a long time. I'm sure you've had many people asking, where's the next book? Where are you? They must think you're dead or something, you know? <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Something will happen, you know? So where have you been? Uh, working on this book, essentially. It, uh, uh, this is a book that struggled to uh, be born, uh, but we made it through somehow to the other side. You why, never know if a, Why did it struggle to be born? What, what was the problem with it? Do you know specifically, uh, or is it just something that happens? I wouldn't say it was any one thing specifically. I think it's uh, an ambitious book in some ways. It um, covers a very long time period. Uh, and it has a lot of structural complexities that um, that made it particularly challenging as a writer. One of the uh, uh, layers of this book uh, that makes it interesting to me structurally is that it's told in several different voices uh, and in several different time periods. And as you probably have heard from other authors, that it, uh, it takes a while to find the voice of a book, and so to do that, uh, multiple times uh, within the same book uh, is is challenging. So so that was part of it, and part of it is just me probably uh, stewing too long uh, over things. I try to be a perfectionist, uh, and that's a bad quality uh, in a writer. You at some point need to let go and accept that uh, all creative decisions are uh, uh, imperfect. And, and you have to just live with the compromises that are, that are required. Right. When I first started reading a book, I must be honest with you, I didn't think I was going to like it. I, <laughs> it, it, it seemed like a slow start. I thought, oh, please, I know we had such a great book before. This has to be good. It just has to be. Because you expect a lot. When you get, when I read Defending Jacob, it was so spectacular. And I thought, this book's got to be as good, because I, I really want it to be. As we, all, as we do when we pick up a book, when you invest yourself in a book, you want it to be good. But as, as it just gets more and more interesting as it goes along. I mean, just, and you just, you're, it's like you're diving into a swimming pool. It, it, it's just, you just dive into this thing, not knowing what's going to happen after you hit. <laughs> it's like, here it is. here's this really, really interesting story with really interesting characters. And some you hate, some you love, and you don't quite know how to feel about everybody. Yeah, yeah and I think that's one uh, one uh, uh, aspect that I wanted to uh, tackle in this book, is that a lot of readers who open this book uh, will come to page one knowing that this is the guy who wrote Defending Jacob, uh, knowing that there hasn't been a book in a while. And so I wanted to use that uh, uh, foreknowledge of the reader uh, to serve the story in this case. I've always thought that, uh, you know, the reader's experience doesn't start at page one. It starts when they pick the book up and they look at the cover and see your name and, 
and they make a, a series of assumptions before they even even come to the first sentence, as you did. Well, how many so in this case, it, oh. in this case, you know, I wanted to uh, acknowledge that and, and lean into it a little bit. Right. Sorry to interrupt you there. I had said a thought that when you go into a bookstore and you pick up a book, I, I know I don't know if you do this, but I do this. I start to read like the first paragraph, and I and <laughs> and I but. So much nowadays, when you read it, you don't get into it right away. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't seem as interesting as maybe the book really is. You really have to delve into the book. Sometimes you, sometimes it's 50 pages before the book gets interesting, and, and even more because of the way that it's structured, because of the way it's written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that that I also try to address in this book, and that is that readers come to books today uh, in a noisier uh, information and entertainment environment than they would have at one point. Uh, the Internet and social media and uh, the, the political and news environment that we all are swimming in uh, teaches us to be both impatient uh, and also uh, to be a little skeptical of the things that we read. Uh, it's very hard to suspend disbelief uh, now, as as Henry James famously said that uh, novel readers are expected to do. Uh, and so I've always thought, you know, I've always envied someone like uh, Melville uh, or Jane Austen or, or you know any of these uh, Victorian uh, writers who knew that they could uh, keep the reader's attention pretty much no matter what. Uh, it's hard to imagine a writer now sitting down and writing a book like Moby Dick with these uh, uh, long, discursive sections on, on the color white or the anatomy of a whale. Or would, any, would anybody read it if they did? It would, exactly. <laughs> would anybody stick with that book now? Uh, it's, it's really not so clear. So when you say that you open books and a lot of times they don't seem to be immediately grabbing you, uh, that may be the books themselves, as you suggest, but it may be that we, the reader, come to come to books with a different mindset than we would have even 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, you know, we're all uh, walking around with these devices in our pockets that are beeping and buzzing all day, and some of us are reading our novels on those devices, and so we're two clicks away from, you know, the endless stream of tweets and and and. Uh, notices and notifications that are constantly uh, uh, pinging at our attention, at the periphery of our attention. And that makes it very hard to sustain the sort of long-term focus that a novel requires. I'm going to remember your, this book for a long time because it's just it's just the way it was written, the, the, the characters, everything about it just haunts me. I think back on it, I think, what would I do if I were any of these people on the story? <laughs> and you put yourself in, you think, what What would I do? I mean, how would I even deal with something like this? My mother's missing or, or whatever I am. But it's just so, it just haunts you. And it stays with you yeah. long after the, you, you've you finished the last page. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, first of all. But that, that's in, um, I assume that's intentional. Well, it's certainly intentional, and I think that that's kind of the intent and the advantage of all uh, good crime novels, which is that, you know, crime is a prism uh, that, that we can use to look at, at more universal uh, areas of concern. 
Uh, I think one reason that, that a good crime story will, will hit home the way this book did with you is that it will resonate with uh, more universal experiences. And to some extent, this is a story about a missing woman uh, and about uh, young people coming to terms uh, with, with losing their parents, first of all, uh, and also with uh, acknowledging the possibility that their own parents have complexities and flaws uh, and even unattractive features that, uh, that they may not want to acknowledge as children. And that is something that we all know as part of growing up. We all uh, say goodbye to our parents one way or another, uh, and we all come to meet our parents as adults uh, and to see them not quite as equals, but uh, as fellow adults with the same kind of flaws that we have, and that is uh, an adjustment that's part of growing up. So what was the... What was a story like this dramatizes that. Right, exactly. What was the hardest thing about writing this book specifically? I mean, what did you have the most trouble with? Without going, without giving too much away, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a difficult book to talk about without spoilers because so much of the fun of the book and so much of the challenge and surprise for readers uh, comes in these unexpected turns, and a lot of those are just built into the structure of the book. Um, so the book, just to uh, orient your readers who, who may not know of it, uh, the book is about a missing woman, uh, a suburban mom whose absence is discovered uh, by her, her young daughter, who's uh, eight years old or so, coming home from, uh, from school one afternoon in 1975 to discover uh, her mother missing. Uh, there's no signs of a crime, no signs of violence, uh, and her, she's, she's simply vanished without a trace. And the book follows uh, over the long term, over decades, uh, the effect of this woman's absence uh, on her children, and also the uh, the shroud of, of mystery and suspicion that surrounds her husband, uh, who is a criminal defense lawyer and who uh, immediately falls under suspicion of, of murdering his wife, uh, not just because he's the husband, and the husband is always uh, a suspect in a missing woman case, but also because he's, he's a criminal lawyer and he's deemed to be especially... Uh, slippery and untrustworthy one uh, who who is presumed to have some expertise in uh, in evading the police uh, and so you know the the book uh, borrows a lot from my life uh, and from my personal experience uh, it uh, it mixes fact and fiction uh, and it blurs the line between the two in a way. And so one of the complexities of this book was how far to to go with that. Uh, we talked earlier about uh, about novel readers today bringing a different kind of skepticism to a book and a different expectation about the tone of a book. And I think that one way to address that state of mind that, that readers bring to, to modern novels uh, is to to, to write in a, in a more realistic mode, in a more frank and honest uh, voice. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> to use Hemingway's phrase, uh, uh, readers have their, their bullshit detectors on at 10 constantly, and, and we need to address that now. Uh, and so the, the book opens in a, um, a memoir kind of style, a, a, a nonfiction sort of tone, and that really uh, is meant to to meet the reader uh, where she is, uh, having you know come from her Twitter feed and her Instagram feed and 
and and feeling a little frazzled and, and skeptical of the things that uh, that she might be reading. Uh, and and I think that's one way to uh, to overcome the attitudes that the readers bring to books today. And I, and I say this. By the way, as someone who who swims in the same water, uh, I I know just that feeling of of, of a frazzled uh, attention span and and that kind of uh, frantic, uh, fragmented way that uh, that we all receive information now because there's just so much information out there for us that's uh, that's being shot at us constantly. And when you, when we open the book, we think that it's you talking to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. It, uh, so the book opens, the, the narrator is a, a novelist uh, who's speaking in the first person and, and who uh, is having difficulty writing a book. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, the, until the very last edit, the name of that character was Bill Landay. <laughs> and and the, first, uh, the first sentence of the book, as it, as it reads now, is, uh, when I finished my last novel, I fell into a long silence. Uh, the, that sentence uh, in the previous draft, and this lasted right up until the very last edit, was when I finished my, finished my last novel, which was called Defending Jacob, I fell into a long silence. And that, that really uh, was meant to, uh, as we say, bring the reader's uh, assumptions right into the story so that you slip into the story from that first paragraph uh, with your assumptions intact. Uh, and, and so you're, you're into the story almost before you know the story has begun. Interesting. Yeah, and, yeah. and it, just, it just adds to the mystique, because mm -hmm. you just wonder, what is going on? Am I being played or something? Is, is, <laughs> is, is he having fun with me? And it, I mean, what, what, what is going You're so good at dialogue, yeah, that, too. That, that sensation, that sensation of am I being played is what's going on here? Well, this book feels different. That is intriguing to me. Uh, I don't want this book to feel like, you know, the, the three books you read before it and the three books you'll read after it. This book feels different, uh, and it's meant to because it's a book that, understands what you uh, are expecting when you open it, and it plays with that. It, it, uh, it, it uses those assumptions, uh, I won't say against you, but it uses those assumptions to serve the story and to lend it a kind of depth and realism uh, that's very hard to achieve in fiction these days. So you, you started writing this book. How far after Defending Jacob was, was finished and out there? I mean, how... how uh, well, it depends. It depends when you say started. I, I mean, started. I would say immediately. There were a number of false starts, of course, uh, mm. and a lot of the final form of this book uh, wasn't anticipated. There's, you know, a lot of trial and error that went into this and trying to get it right. Uh, I'm always trying to raise the bar uh, and and challenge myself as well, and so. Uh, one thing I did not want to do was write uh, Defending Jacob 2. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> the son of Defending Jacob. Right. You know, I, 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 and that would have been the, the easy thing to do. Uh, and so I wanted to uh, undermine every uh, 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 cliche and every assumption about uh, how to repeat that success. Uh, I didn't want to follow the formula, and that meant that I really was out in the open sea. 
Uh, and that is time-consuming because there's there's a lot of trial and error involved in, in finding an original uh, new path. And I like to think that this book does things that uh, are, that are unexpected. Uh, and that's that's the adventure uh, of, of of any book that, that really works for you. You know, we've all had those uh, electric reading experiences of, of books that come off the page. Uh, and that often involves surprise, uh, a book that keeps you off balance. And that's very hard to do because readers are very smart. And we're very late in the life of this art form. And, and readers have kind of seen all the tricks. So you really do have to dig deep at this point to write in a way that is uh, engaging and honest, uh, but at the same time surprising, uh, and that keeps readers off balance. And that was my goal. And, you know, it's interesting because you read a book that's a mystery like this, and there are times when you're reading it and you think, oh, well, maybe I should jump to the last page to see how this is going. I don't know if I can stand the suspense anymore. And I, I don't know if you've ever felt that way with a book, but I have. And, and sometimes I've accidentally seen the ending. <laughs> I, I, I've gotten myself in a lot of trouble doing that. But you can't do it with this one. I just refuse to let myself do it for this one because I was so into the book and I needed to know exactly what was going to happen next. I, I needed to follow the story just as you were telling it. Because first yeah. of all, I trust you as the writer, and I knew that the more I got into this book, the more I was going to like it, and I was really going to be like, "Wow, this is really cool! I really am enjoying this." And I don't yeah, want to. I think that that's yeah. Yeah. That's the. I mean, that to me is is well. Thank you. Well, again, it's a it's a wonderful thing to hear, and that is the uh, the challenge. You know, this uh, is, this is essentially a mystery, uh, and how many mysteries are suspense novels? Have you read? Uh, so, given that this is very unlikely to be a reader's first mystery novel, uh, it's all about the journey. It's all about the execution, and so the telling has to be original. And uh, it's about the journey uh, to the solution. It's not just about reaching that final scene where where the detective names the the guilty one, or where there's a confession from the witness stand. Uh, the answer to the mystery in some ways is less interesting than the experience of the people who are going through it. And, and that, by the way, is, is very true to, uh, to crime in, in, in the real world and to life. Uh, we just can't know uh, the truth about many things, even, even in criminal cases that, uh, that come to uh, a seemingly obvious guilty verdict. Uh, there's always doubt, and there's always doubt in our relationships with other people, and we simply have to accept that. And so this, in a way, is a book about doubt. It's about not knowing. It's about a crime that, to some extent, can't be solved uh, to, to, to a level of certainty that, that even approaches 100%. Uh, and, and so that is, that in some ways, is the challenge of this book. How do you write a, a mystery novel uh, that reaches a satisfying resolution and yet still is true to that experience of the characters involved, which is that there can't be a solution. There will always be doubt and dispute between them. Uh, so, you know, you're, that, you're trying to square that circle, and that's, that's part of the complexity of this novel. And that, that is one reason that I think the characters come across as being uh, psychologically uh, acute and and having uh, the sort of depth that real people have. Uh, they're not expecting to find 
artificially uh, uh, ironclad solutions to these mysteries. Like I was trying to say before, you really are good with dialogue, which dialogue back, and especially dialogue back and forth between characters, because as, you, as we're reading this dialogue in this book, we're like, yeah, get him, get him, get him, back and forth, <laughs> and we're, it, it's like it's like watching a tennis match almost, but it, it's so intriguing and so thought-provoking as, as you're reading you're thinking oh maybe we're going to find out something in this paragraph and then you, we, you don't necessarily find out anything but you you want to read the next one just to see if you will on that one so it's there's so like you said there's so many layers to this book i mean it's like where when are we going to find out something that's going to tell us the ending or, or at least hint at the ending so we're, mm-hmm. as we're as we're reading this book, that's the experience I had it with it anyway, and I, I'm sure a lot of other people have had the same experience. But what makes you so good at dialogue? Have you always been that way? <laughs> well, I don't know if I would uh, claim that for myself. Um, well, I think that it's it's uh, I think it's just a knack, and I think it's um, it's something that I enjoy as a reader. You know, this is something that. Uh, Elmore Leonard was very good at. You have those long uh, pages of straight dialogue, and yet he's uh, doing a lot of exposition uh, through his dialogue. It's a, it's a kind of storytelling that uh, I always find fresh and interesting. And, and again, true to how we uh, uh, experience uh, life. You know, we, we learn in the sort of uh, incomplete and, and uh, interpretive uh, uh, way. Uh, by hearing other people speak and and people sort of tell you who they are uh, and what they know by by what they say, and not just in the content of what they say, but in the in the style of their speech. So uh, I've always enjoyed that as a reader, and, and if I can create that uh, that sensation for for others, then then that's great. How do you look at yourself as a writer? I mean, do you do you think to yourself, "Boy, I'm really good at this," or do you, or do you, or, or do you say to yourself, "Oh, that's really bad. You're a bad writer." I mean, how, what goes through your head? One wonders. Oh, uh, David, I certainly have never said, "Oh my God, I'm really good at this." Uh, I think as a writer, I just, uh, I think you're really just struggling to do the best that you can. Uh, it's an impossible. Uh, profession and a, an impossible art form for me, at least, because you never feel like you've mastered it. I never feel that uh, one book makes me smarter or more expert at this, uh, and so you're always just struggling to do it as best you can. Uh, I promise you, I could go through this and and point to you all of the parts that that are held together with scotch tape and, and bits of string. Uh, and yet, it never seems that way as you're reading it. it Exactly. You're trying to polish and polish. You're like a, ma- you're like a magician. <laughs> right. Well, the, the, the phrase is uh, hard writing makes easy reading. And I feel like the more I suffer and the more I grind, uh, the smoother, the more frictionless I can make it uh, for the reader. And when you get, when the reader has that sort of frictionless experience, when there's no uh, moments that uh, bump and clank and seem unrealistic and and jostle the reader out of the uh, experience of the story itself, then what you get is kind of a smooth experience of, of slipping into a story and really living in that fictional world uh, without ever being roused from the dream. And that is uh, the magic of, of, of books that really work, the books that you find yourself reading at 2 o'clock in the morning. 
there is there was one sentence that really annoyed me in this book. I mean, really annoyed me to the point where I almost threw the book across the room. And I can't even oh, tell no. you, I can't even tell you what it is because it'll spoil something. So I, I can't I can't even bring it up. But I thought to myself, oh my god, and, and, and I can't I can't even explain why I thought that because it, it, that would that might give something. There's too much. It's like walking through quicksand. I feel like I, no matter what I say, it's going to give something away. And I don't. Yeah, it's a very difficult book to, to, to talk about without giving giving things away. <laughs> it really is because because it's it's really it's it's you know the, it it's dialed in tight. Uh, everything that's there is there for a reason, even when it seems to be uh, moving at a leisurely pace. Um, it's it's pretty stripped down at this point. There's the last edit. I think we lost about twenty percent of the story uh, on a single cut. And that was to make sure that the screws were tightened as much as they could be, so that once the reader started, it would it would whoosh by. And and so, do you think do you miss that twenty percent? I mean, do you? Well, I think it's a trade-off. I think you know the reason you uh, make those sort of cuts is to keep the pace uh, tight and to keep the story involving from page one to to the last page. Uh, but the there are sacrifices, and the sacrifice is a little bit of depth. It's a little bit of getting to know secondary characters uh, and explore those relationships a little bit. Uh, and so you're constantly making trade-offs, and this is what I, one thing I'm referring to when I talk about creative decisions not having correct answers. I think some writer, some readers uh, might have preferred the longer version, the director's cut, <laughs> we right. could call it. Uh, and some readers would prefer the, this one that, that moves a little more quickly and that uh, that doesn't slow down so much to explore character because because uh, some readers would prefer to just keep the story moving. Uh, there's no right answer to that. It's a matter of taste. And as a writer, you're just trying to hit that sweet spot of having uh, enough momentum in the story to, to make it uh, compelling uh, and yet having enough character depth uh, and enough uh, dimension to those relationships uh, that the story doesn't seem superficial uh, and just a, a throwaway. Uh, do you al- do you always know what should stay and what shouldn't stay, or or do, no. do you get help with that? <laughs> um, you you never know for sure, and you're constantly making these sorts of judgments. Uh, and and there's no uh, science to it. You're it's it's a, it's a matter of feel. Uh, you're going through, and if something, there are some passages uh, where you know it feels right, and you know that that the moment you write it, you know it's going to be there uh, in the final version of the book. Uh, and there are some that are just awful and clanky, and and you know that's getting cut. But for most of it, it's somewhere in between. You know, it's it's uh, it's the best you could do at the time, and it feels good. It feels like it can work, uh, but you also have a nagging uh, suspicion that. You know, maybe it could be, it could have gone a little better. Uh, one thing to remember is that uh, as a reader, you you regard a book as an object, as a, a final uh, product. And it feels, as you turn the pages, it feels sort of inevitable. Uh, the, the words are there on the page, and you are meant to follow them. Uh, but for a writer, a book is a performance. Uh, it's, it's the way you wrote on that day. Uh, and and the text that remains on the page is just the residue of that performance. It's it's the record of it. Uh, and so some days you write really well, 
some di- some days it just doesn't come as easily, and there's no uh, science to uh, <laughs> to make it happen more reliably. It's it's an art. Uh, so you, you make it sound like, like hearing a musical performance. Right. You make it sound like there's so much more about writing you could you could know that you don't know. But you seem, but but reading the book, you just feel. I just feel like you know a lot about writing. So which is it? Do you do you, do you really wish there was more you knew, or do you think you know most? Uh, in in terms of the art of writing, or or, or about this particular yeah, about story? the art of writing. I mean, do you think there's there's things that maybe you should know that you don't know? Um, I don't. I think that the things. I think there are things I don't know that cannot be known. Um, oh, that's an interesting I don't comment. Think, I think that this is just, uh, as I say, you can work on your skills, and you know, you try to get your reps in and, and polish uh, your talent as much as you can and learn as much as you can. Uh, but the fact is, it's always going to be a performance uh, because it it. It is a uh, because each novel is its own original creation. Uh, you don't get to practice the same uh, song or the same dance or the same uh, part in a play by performing it over and over again. Uh, you get one shot, and and so to some extent, each book is a new beginning, and it's a precarious uh, route from from the, the beginning of the manuscript to the end. And uh, the you know the best the best uh, uh, description of it that I've heard is the El Doctoros, which is that it's like driving at night, uh, and you know you can see the little bit that's in your headlights, and you kind of can drive home that way, but you can't see the whole thing, and it feels a little precarious at times, uh, and that's just the nature of it. Uh, again, I don't think that this is that you can't be you can't master this. Uh, you can become you can become very good at it, but every time you sit down uh, to face that blank page, it's it's a challenge, uh, and and I am as terrified of that blank page now as I was 30 years ago when I first started this. Wow, that's, that's really powerful to hear you say that. And yet, I think of writers like Stephen King, who seem to, you know, they just seem to know everything that there is to know about writing. <laughs> but even I, yeah, I, it's, just, it's interesting because I feel I almost feel like Steve. I think people writers like Stephen King who are prolific. Uh, I don't think they know any more or less about it. In fact, Stephen King is very frank about uh, respecting that blank page and respecting this art and coming to it uh, with your full commitment every day. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. I think what makes writers like that uh, especially impressive to me uh, is that they're able to muster that discipline and that commitment over and over again. I find it so draining, uh, and I find that uh, good writing days are often followed by bad writing days because I'm just exhausted. Uh, And so when I look at writers like that, uh, what fills me with uh, respect and, and awe is just that they're able to repeat it over and over again. Uh, for me, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a trial, uh, and and I, it's a series of uh, performances that leave me exhausted and needing to recover. It's sprint and recover, sprint and recover. Uh, I don't have that sort of marathoner's endurance uh, that those guys seem to uh, seem to have, and maybe I just don't have the discipline either. Hmm. I, I guess everybody, every writer is different, but you just wonder. Exactly. 
there's yeah. got to be, I mean, the way you describe writing, you, you can't be the only writer that ever goes through that. <laughs> there's got to be many oh, others sure. who do. <laughs> for sure. And yet, as readers, we just want another book. That's all we care about. We want another book because we want to enjoy yeah. something. And so right. we're impatient. And as readers, that's, yeah, that's how it should be, uh, honestly, because I don't feel, you know, you and I are having a conversation now, but when a reader opens a book, uh, however difficult it was for the writer to uh, write it, uh, has no effect or should have no bearing on the reader's experience of the book. Um, the, the writer owes the reader his best effort. The reader owes the writer nothing. Uh, the reader has every right to expect uh, the best possible performance uh, every time, and that's that's the challenge of being a writer. And that's you know I uh, absolutely feel that debt to my readers, and I hope never to disappoint them. And in fact, I would much rather uh, you know take longer between books, uh, so that when I come to them with a book, uh, I can know in my heart of hearts. Uh, you know, I can't tell you if this book will work for you or not. What I can tell you is this book is the very best I could do uh, right now at this moment in my life uh, with the, the skills and the experience that I bring. Well, just tell uh, me it's not going to know. be another 10 years before we see a book from you. <laughs> <laughs> I really well, don't want to wait 10 years. I'm 59 years old, so I can't go 10 years between books anymore. The math doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we have to wait 10 years, we'll all go nuts. I mean, it's, it's bad enough we have to wait like five years for Elizabeth George to write a book, you know, and, or even Kate Morton. I mean, but, you know, it's like we it's you get so impatient. Like, when is the next book? I'm sick of waiting, you know? And, yeah. And, and I don't I mean, to, I don't mean to be too precious about this either. I mean, to some extent, there's something to be said for producing. Uh, there's a very interesting uh our researcher named David Galenson, who has studied uh, creativity and, and the different forms of creativity. And one of the things that he's, uh, conclusions that he's come to is that uh, people that we regard as geniuses often aren't producing uh, uh, genius-level work at a higher rate than others. They're simply producing a lot more volume of work. And somewhere in that greater uh, 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 opus uh, is a number of masterpieces. Produce fewer books, and you are uh, that much more less likely uh, to produce the masterpieces among them because you're probably producing good work at about the same rate. So higher volume, to some extent, uh, does translate into a greater chance of of uh, pulling that winning lottery ticket. So. Uh, to some extent, it's in my interest, too, to write more books uh, in the hope that somewhere among those uh, 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 ten books will be two or three really good ones. Uh, you know, you write ten, uh, hope to about three or four hundred, and, and that's great, and that's great. But, you know, my point is, uh, if you're going to step up to the plate, uh, swing for the fences, uh, because I, to me, it's not, I don't want to be the sort of writer who is a single hitter and who's looking to be consistently pretty good. Uh, I'm, I would much rather have a home run uh, every three or four at-bats uh, right. because those home runs are, are all that last. Uh, those home runs, you know, <laughs> uh, ten years after your death, those are the books you're remembered by as your best ones. Uh, is, is consistently okay is, 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 not, is not my ambition. 
how hard is it for you to figure out the ending of a book? Is it is it really difficult for you sometimes, or is it easy? Yeah, it's it's always difficult, and and the reason is you want the, the what the reader expects and what you the experience you want for the reader is to be surprised and to be delighted that way. Um, and it's very hard for readers to uh, feel surprised and yet not mistreated uh, at this at this point. It's very hard to. Uh, trick them uh, and still be honest with them. Uh, when a, a surprising ending to a book works, it works because the, the reader does not feel that they've been lied to. They feel that that surprising ending is earned somehow. Uh, it's all in the story there, and they could have seen it coming but didn't. Uh, and so to write honestly that way uh, and yet still throw the reader off balance takes some doing because readers are very smart. Uh, and at this point, they've they've read a lot and they've seen a lot of tricks, and and yet they still want to see something that they've never seen before. Yeah, so, I think of the, yeah, I think of the ending of the work. I, mean, I think of the ending of this, and then there were none, which nobody saw coming. I mean, nobody in the whole mm-hmm. world would ever see an ending like that coming. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, well, why can't authors do that every time? <laughs> but right. You, but the more you read, the more you realize it's very difficult. I mean, how. You've got you've got a cast of characters, and no matter who you make the murderer, it may not be that much of a surprise. But what right. do, what do you do to make it more of a surprise? That's the issue. That's right. that's what you really and and some writers are better at it than others. Yeah, in my opinion. And I think it it, it I mean, there is something to be said for slowing down a little bit and thinking it through. And and you you can't do it if you're trying to bang out. You know, a book every few months. <laughs> you know, if you're going to write that way, that you're you, what you are sacrificing is, is some of the thought. And uh, you know, to me, that's just I. I when I think back over the books that that I've read in in all of my reading life, uh, it's the few that that stand out, the ones that really uh, left an impression on me and imprinted on me. Uh, and the rest of the books, you know, there's a lot of times where you, you can't even quite remember if you've read that book or not. And that is a book that, that didn't quite land or, or didn't stick with you. So Even from you, even from great writers, too. Even great writers yeah, can exactly. write bad books. Exactly. Yep. Or books that, you know, you enjoyed while you were reading them. But, you know, six months or a year later, you can't, <laughs> you can't quite remember what the book was. Hmm. Um, and so you're trying, you know, when you're sitting down to do this, uh, you're obviously trying to create those books that really uh, imprint on readers and really uh, throw them. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's the goal. Do you have any writers that you read that you love everything they write? Um, I can't say that I have writers that I love everything they write. Uh, there are writers... Uh, that I love uh, the style of everything they write. I love the level of uh, craftsmanship. And I, those are people uh, like Roth and Updike and Ian McEwen, uh, who are the great sentence writers. Uh, and for those people, I think even when the books don't quite work, uh, there's still the sentence writing is inspirational. Uh, and some of those uh, people are, you know, when I'm stuck and I'm, uh, I've lost the sound of good writing. Those are the writers who you, know, you can open up to most any page 
and you can be reminded, oh, this is what good prose sounds like. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think any writer uh, bats a thousand. Uh, and I don't think any writer should bat a thousand, honestly, because if you never have a book uh, that fails, that probably means you're never taking a chance. Uh, you're never trying something. You're never uh, working without a net. Uh, and I think that every writer should uh, should push themselves to to the absolute limit of their talent. Um, and that's what we owe readers. <laughs> There's it's a privilege to be a writer. There's very few people in this country that are allowed to do this professionally. And so what you owe uh, your readers in exchange for that privilege is, is your absolute best. Uh, and so that's how I think about it. And I think of it as a uh, privilege and a responsibility. And I try to be worthy of it. That doesn't mean that you'll always succeed, by the way. Uh, it only means that you really dig deep uh, and really try each time. Right. And that's an, an obviously important to you. So yeah. are you working on another book? I know you can't say anything about it, but are you indeed writing another book? I am. I am, and I'm, I'm in the early stages, but I do hope to write something uh, more conventional, uh, at least in its structure, and so something that <laughs> can be written in something less than 10 years. <laughs> Will you ever do so, a series? I mean, like a, a series with the same character? Know, I've I've always avoided them because I, I feel that oh, as a reader I want each book to be a complete dramatic experience, and I worry that if uh, I were writing a series, I could not bring that story to a close at the end of each book because I would need to preserve uh, enough for myself to to start writing the same story mm. uh, the next episode. Uh, so I have avoided it, but I also uh, see the advantages of it from the writer's point of view. Uh, it would be great to not have these gaps between books where I'm trying to reimagine a whole world. Uh, and if that would, uh, you know, help to keep the, the assembly line moving, then that's something I would consider. So the short answer is, uh, it's something I am considering. I don't know if I would write uh, kind of an endless series of a recurring uh, character, a detective character or something. Uh, but I, I might consider a you know, two or three book series uh, that had an, an arc to it that was uh, designed so that uh, I, I could know that there is an ending uh, and, and design the dramatic experience for each book uh, without having to keep things open-ended and unresolved. Uh, and just keep all those balls in the air forever. Uh, now, Defending Jacob was on what, Hulu, the series? It was Apple TV. Apple TV, okay. It, it, the question now is, is there any interest in this new book? Uh, there is interest, um, and it's uh, <laughs> we're uh, investigating that now. It's, it's way too soon to, to know if it will ever happen. Uh, even Defending Jacob it had a very long and, and stormy uh, uh, route to to being produced. Uh, it's 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 very unlikely that any of these uh, books, even the ones that are optioned, uh, will actually be produced. Uh, you have to run the table and and have uh, a success at every turn. You know, finding a production company, 
finding writers, finding actors, and at any point of those things, uh, it, the whole project can fail. But you have such, um, it's such a great story, it'd be a shame not to. That's how I yeah. feel. Well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, and that's a, that's a great it's a great thing to hear because I mean it it does suggest that that's a story that uh, lives in your imagination that that uh, you know creates this almost cinematic experience for you where you want to see these scenes uh, that you've imagined in your head and you want to see these characters uh, who you've heard and you feel like you've met them and yet it's it's always kind of uh, exciting to see them embodied by actors. Exactly, and it, it makes them real in a way that, uh, in a way, literary characters are more real uh, than than uh, uh, dramatic actors on uh, and film or TV. Uh, but in a way, there's something uh, something uh, concrete about them and specific about them that makes them uh, more familiar in a way. I, I, I like John Le Carre a lot. Uh, but I have to say that I always found George Smiley uh, more compelling on TV and movies than I did in the books. Well, that's um, an interesting stuff. comment. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I think that there's, for all of his complexity, there's something kind of uh, flat about his characterization on the page that that has to do with his temperament, uh, with that, with George's uh, disposition, and just seeing him uh, embodied, <laughs> you know, is uh, helps. And so sometimes, uh, sometimes the story benefits uh, by being uh, uh, moved to the screen. Um, I don't say that one is better or more compelling than the other, by the way. It's just that uh, uh, a different version can be interesting in a different way. Defending J the, the miniseries of Defending Jacob uh, was very different from the book in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, well. But it was, it, was, it was interesting for all of those differences. Um, and by the way, I never felt the need to defend the book, and, and I never uh, expected uh, or wanted the uh, screenwriters to try and uh, capture the book beat for beat uh, as it was on the page. I wanted them to riff uh, freely on the stories and the characters and, and to see where it went. It's a, it's a new work in a different medium, and you want these talented people to, to do what they do. Well, you know, a lot of so, Defending Jacob got a lot of attention on, on Apple TV. I mean, when it was on, I remember yeah, it was a big thing. It sure did. It sure did. Although one thing to remember is that it uh, came out when Apple TV was still uh, being launched. Mm -hmm. um, it was, was relatively young. Uh, and so I think the user base of Apple TV was relatively small at the time. So, um, you know, it, it, it found its audience, and, and I thought it was well done and well received. Um, it was hampered a little bit by, by the fact that Apple TV wasn't the mature uh, product that it is now. Do you get letters sometimes from readers who say, you know, if they don't like a book or they like a book? I mean, do you get letters that just say, oh, I hated your book or I loved your book or... <laughs> I get the, yeah I get emails every day. Um, they'll either come uh, there's an email link on my website or they'll come through social media. I will say that 99.99 percent of those are positive. Uh, it would be very rare to I can personally I can't even imagine it would be very rare to seek out a writer uh, just to announce to him personally that you did not like his book. <laughs> I 
I can't That's true. Why. Although there, there was one book recently that I felt that way about, and I was so angry at Really? At the ending, I wanted yeah. to write to the author, and I didn't, but I was very tempted to. Yeah, I can't say I've never heard a negative word. It's just that most people uh, who take the effort to seek out a writer are doing so because they uh, want to say something positive. Um, <laughs> it's not that people won't uh, badmouth you, but they'll they'll do it in a tweet rather than addressing it to you directly. Right. Well, I can't wait to see what your next book's going to be about. I'm really looking forward to it, even if it takes 10 years. <laughs> I don't think it will, and I, I have faith that you'll you'll be able to do it in, what, a year, maybe? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I'm sure all your readers hope so, too. Well, we've been just... You, well, thank you. This has just been a lot of fun. Um, the book is called, again, All That Is Mine I Carry With Me, and it's published by which division of Penguin or Random House is this? It's uh, uh, Bantam Valentine. Yeah, no, there's so many divisions of that company now. It's like, how do you keep I them all know, all, you need to know, all you need to know is the title. <laughs> That's right. Just remember the title. And William Landy's yeah. been talking to us, and it's been, yeah. it's been a delight. You're, you're a very interesting and easygoing person. I really appreciate all the input. Oh, thanks, David. It's good to talk to you. Thanks. And this has been David's Book Talk, and we'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidsbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you. And we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.